Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival, annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. It also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day. This is the Gospel Feast Podcast for those that need a little meat after the milk. It's time to feast on the Word. Welcome back. We're continuing our studies in the book of Ruth. Now, we have explored how the ideas of salvation in the scriptures are tied in with land ownership and human stewardship in our inheritance here on earth. The Lord has said that the meek would inherit the earth. And here in the book of Ruth, we see how Ruth's meekness and Naomi's knowledge of her rights under the law brings out the best that is Boaz. We are ready to meet the Romeo of our story, the rich and powerful Boaz. Read, let's continue our study of Ruth. The rabbis say that happenstance is not a kosher word. In other words, good luck and coincidence are merely God choosing to be anonymous. Of all the fields possible, Ruth happens to choose to glean her daily bread in one of the fields of Boaz. As it also just happens. Ruth 2.3 And she went and came, and gleaned in the field after the reapers. 
and her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. Then said Boaz unto his servant that was set over the reapers, Whose damsel is this? It just so happens that on this particular day, Boaz has come in from town to check up on his reaper's progress. Ruth must have been beautiful. We already know that the wealthy Elimelech saw her as a fine catch for his son. But here we are told that of all the poor gleaning along in Boaz's fields, his eyes go straight to Ruth. The rabbis say that Boaz noticed something about Ruth that was immediately different. First, she had carefully marked her way through town from the place she and Naomi were staying at to the field she was gleaning in. She wanted to make sure that she could easily find her way home again after work. They say that Boaz also noticed how she was not greedy. She would purposefully glean two stalks, but leave the third untouched so that another gleaner might find food as well. However, what impressed him most was her noble grace. She was a princess, after all, and she acted like a modest lady of refinement. Apparently, some of the younger girls enjoyed gleaning grain on the ground by bending over and letting the young men catch a glimpse of her curvature. Ruth was not like this. She would glean the upright grain standing up, but if she needed to reach grain on the ground, she would lower herself to the dirt. Her beauty was more than form. It was her function, too. She was modest and ladylike, and Boaz noticed her. So he asked his foreman. And the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, It is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came, and hath continued even from the morning until now, that she tarried a little in the house. It is interesting to note that even though Ruth had a legal right to glean, she seeks permission of the men to do so. A far cry from the typical screams of entitlement one hears in our nation when the poor and destitute demand their rightful welfare services. Boaz was impressed. Graceful beauty always attracts a man and tends to bring out his inner gentleman. It can be like a perfect flower, and the desire to protect it is inherent. He found her innocence and beauty something that deserved extra care. Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, Go into the vessels, and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Young men, even in Israel, can be handsy with a pretty girl. Boaz knows that there is wisdom in the maidens staying together when going on a group date, but he makes sure that Ruth knows she is welcome, and even free to take advantage of the perks he has provided for his own reapers. It can also be useful for the young men working for him to hear that the boss wants her treated well. His kindness is deeply touching to Ruth. We are told that she... Then she fell on her face, and bowed herself to the ground, and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes, that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? 
It is here that we get an insight into just how mighty Boaz really was. When the story calls him one of the mighty Ephrathites of Bethlehem Judah, he is a man in the know. In fact, it has been speculated that he was actually one of the leading elders of the town, and most likely one of the princes of the tribe of Judah. Note this carefully. And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath fully been shown me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother, and the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore. While Boaz had not seen Ruth, and therefore couldn't be sure it was her until they were properly introduced, once he realized who this girl was, he admitted that he had been well briefed as to her situation, circumstance, and history. As a powerful leader, Boaz knew what was going on around him. Boaz's words to Ruth further contain an interesting phrase, which will serve as a fruitful but related tangent. A full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. Just what are the wings of the Lord? Does the Lord have wings? Yes, he does. Actually, you do too. Okay, where are my wings? A man gets his wings when he enters into a priesthood covenant with the Lord. They start to develop with Levitical service, but lengthen in their splendor with his kingship. The first symbol of masculinity in Hebrew thought is protective strength. A man's heavenly strength comes from the Lord, endowing him as a son of God. His life's lesson from that point is on learning how to use his strength righteously. This is not easy. A woman gets her wings at motherhood officially, but finds them also gaining grace and beauty as she becomes a priestess, and eventually a queen, to her husband. Both genders share in the duties of the other, and in this they become one when working together in one purpose. But individually, a woman can no more bear the priesthood than a man can bear a child. Anything more or less of this comes of sin. In the Temple of Solomon, the white linen skirts worn by the priests were symbols of these celestial wings, strength for men and nurture for women. In the Restoration, we are endowed anew with priesthood strength and motherly nurture as we work to perfect ourselves, our family, and to redeem our kindred dead. The wings of the Lord are again spread out, and this time millions and millions of saviors on Mount Zion have flocked to his warm embrace and protection. Likewise, because of Jesus Christ, we are able to gather others, both living and dead, to find safety and love beneath our wings. This is saving on Mount Zion. Now you possess one of the Lord's whitest pearls. Be careful where you cast it. We'll talk more about this in a later episode with Ruth. Let's get back to Ruth and Boaz's kind words to her. Hopefully now you will understand them, as Boaz meant them, when he said, Ruth 2.8 Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel under whose wings thou art come to trust. Boaz is openly welcoming Ruth into the family of Israel. In his mind, she is no longer a Moabitess, but a daughter of Israel. Ruth, ever humble, says kindly back. Then she said, Let me find favor in thy sight, my lord, for thou hast comforted me, and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid. 
though I be not like unto one of thine handmaids. And Boaz said unto her, At mealtime come thou hither, and eat of the bread, and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. And she sat beside the reapers, and he reached her parched corn, and she did eat, and was sufficed, and left. It is said that vinegar is refreshing to workers in a hot field. Many people today still enjoy a splash of vinegar on a piece of crusty bread. While it is certainly a nice lunch break, one can't help but notice the symbolism the author has left for us here. You will note that the first, only, and last supper recorded for us in Ruth is Boaz giving her bread and wine. Vinegar means sour wine. It is actually wine where the alcohol has been eaten out by bacteria, so it's not really possible for it to be intoxicating per se. In the days before modern distillery, all wine went sour if given enough time, and frankly, what is wine but rotten fruit juice that is not entirely yet sour anyway? And when she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and reproach her not. And let fall also some of the handfuls on purpose for her, and leave them that she may glean them, and rebuke her not. Boaz is a kind man. He is so impressed with Ruth that he makes it clear, when she can't hear, that his reapers are to make sure and miss several handfuls as they are harvesting so Ruth can legally have them. And if she accidentally gleans in a place that they haven't had first pass yet, let it slide. He wants her to have the food she needs. So she gleaned in the field until even, and beat out that she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up, and went into the city. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. And she brought forth, and gave to her, that she had reserved after she was sufficed. When Ruth returned to Naomi with such an abundance for a gleaner, Naomi was puzzled, and possibly even concerned. Typically, a gleaner's life was a meager one. More stingy landowners permitted gleaning, but only because the law allowed it. Here Ruth had returned with much more grain, and of much higher quality than she should have been able to get. Biblical scholars believe that this ephah could have been as much as 35 pounds of barley. Wow. Naomi knew that something was wrong, and so she asked her gently. And her mother-in-law said unto her, Where hast thou gleaned today, and where wroughtest thou? Blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. And she shewed her mother-in-law, with whom she had wrought, and said, The man's name with whom I wrought today is Boaz. Naomi's good mother Jewish brain started to think when she heard the name Boaz. She quickly put together that Boaz must have thought kindly of Ruth, or at the very least felt bad for her. Naomi was his aunt, after all, and a widow. Either way, it is useful to have a friend in a position of civil power. And it was obvious to Naomi that Boaz was taking special care of Ruth. This was a good sign. And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said unto her, The man is near of kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. And Ruth the Moabitess said, He said unto me also, Thou shalt keep fast by my young men, until they have ended all my harvest. Naomi here is acknowledging that Boaz is a close relative, but also thanking the Lord for Boaz's kindness. Unlike her stingy husband, 
Boaz was generous. Tradition says that Naomi's relation to Boaz came through her dead husband's side. The rabbis say that in terms of genealogy, it worked like this. Judah and Tamar had given birth down the generations to Nashon, who had married. Nashon gave birth to Solomon, who married Rahab, Elimelech, who married Naomi, and another man called Tov, who we will later hear called so-and-so. Solomon and Rahab would give birth to Boaz. Elimelech and Naomi's son would marry Ruth, and of course we know that Boaz and Ruth are coming together. I think it is likely that Naomi didn't approach her in-laws because she feared that they were stingy like her husband had been. Her sojourn in Moab had been at least ten years, and the fact that they had left in wealth and returned in poverty did not speak well for their use of family and personal assets. I suspect that it was either Naomi's pride or fear that kept her from seeking help. She admits that the whole experience had left her quite bitter. Whatever Naomi's thinking process, being a Jewess with knowledge of the law, she began to suspect that there might be a legal and honorable way to go about getting security for herself and for Ruth. This she planned to do by invoking the law of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. In doing this, she is being a savior on Mount Zion to those in her care. Ruth 2.22 And Naomi said unto Ruth her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that thou go out with his maidens, that they meet thee not in any other field. So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of barley harvest and of wheat harvest, and dwelt with her mother-in-law. Several months will pass. All the while, Ruth is faithful to Boaz's and Naomi's counsel. She had promised her mother-in-law that she would be true to all that Naomi told her to do. Here we see that she is keeping true to her word. It is here that we first intersect with the real Mormon part of the book of Ruth. Let's go back and examine Naomi's exclamation of joy to Ruth, for it will yet be our exclamation of joy before the throne of heaven. And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said unto her, The man is near of kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. Secular Christianity has lost the concept of praying for the welfare of the dead, with the exception of Catholicism. Latter-day Saints know that the dead are in as much in need of a kinsman redeemer as are the living. We already studied the Jewish concept of land ownership and debt. We know from events that are soon to happen that Elimelech leased out his property by contract. Naomi reasoned that Boaz might be willing to be their goel, if not out of kindness to his aunt, then perhaps for the love of Ruth. He might be just the one to seize the contract scroll from whomever held it, fulfill the terms of redemption on the outside, and snap open the waxed seal, redeeming them. The catch would be, would he be willing to do it? She knew he was able, and he was family. So all that was left was Boaz's willingness. We should add here that sometimes a goel might make a new contract with the one he was redeeming. The old contract of debt had been paid, and was no longer binding, that is true, but the goel had the right to make a new contract in exchange for his redemptive act. If it was a man needing redemption, he might agree to act as a servant or tributary for a period of time to his Redeemer in exchange for the help or as a sign of gratitude. 
If it was a woman needing redemption, she might agree to a marriage, which would also greatly add to her status. The concept of the Leverite marriage here might also be invoked, but that is really a story for another time. Okay. The obvious legal lesson that the Lord was trying to teach Israel was that each of us, individually, has been given a stewardship on earth. While here, we all jeopardize our situation by making a deal with the devil, so to speak. Through sin, we lose our rights to all the gifts that God has given us, including our own souls. Being destitute, we are in desperate need of a kinsman, mighty and strong, who is both willing and able to get us out of the bad deal we have made. It is possible that our kinsmen might make some new demands of us in exchange. Jesus Christ, born of Mary, is our kinsman. Becoming the blood of Adam through the womb of Eve and Mary, he joined our human family. He is also a prince, mighty and strong. When we accept Jesus' offer of redemption, he is both willing and able to take the deed to our body and souls out of the hand of the just God whose laws we have broken. He fulfilled to the letter the conditions on the outside of our contracts, meaning that these conditions are known to all. In other words, they are plain to see. And then he snapped the seal and freed us. Satan, who stands ready to accuse us, and the Father too if he sees anything unfair, has therefore nothing to say. Jesus is our Boaz, and we in turn need to be as Naomi, bringing our Ruths, friends, and family together under the wings of Zion. It occurs to Naomi that Boaz may be just the hero to do this for her. And so, like a good Jewish matchmaking mother, she hatches a romantic plan. Oh yes, we have all known many wonderful mothers and mothers-in-law that have tried their best at matchmaking. So we will have to wait for that in our next podcast. We are out of time. Those that want to dive deeper into the book of Ruth, you are encouraged to find this book, Ruth and the Saviors on Mount Zion, on Amazon. It's also included in Kindle Unlimited. And until our next podcast, may the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Music